0: So we're gonna pray here in a second. Uh, Before I get started, I just wanna share, my son came to me this morning and he said, Jason, I just wanna tell you before you go this morning, don't blow. You're supposed to laugh, you're supposed to laugh. It's it's okay, you're laugh at that. And he said, you have my permission to share that with everybody else, and so. And I just wanna be clear, I make zero promises. (laughs) That's right, that's right. Somebody's laughing still, that's good. Okay, I would like to open in prayer. So join me, please. Uh, Jesus, your, your word is serious, and it is special, and it is ours. And we're thankful that you've given it to us. And so I pray, Lord, that you would apply it now to our hearts, and to our minds, and to our lives. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord Jesus. Forgive me of my sins, for they are many. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So if you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, that's where we're going to spend some time today. We're one week out from Easter. One week out, yeah, it's still exciting, except there's no bells, so it feels a little less exciting. But nonetheless, even without the bells, uh, the global church is still in a season of hope. And I say that because I, I don't think it's an exaggeration. There may not be a better time in our society to have a message of hope than right now. I happened to read a study that was Published this published in February. I read it this week. It's titled, titled, America's Crisis of Despair. And it highlighted several things that are driving despair in our society. One of those things is the economy. So for decades, right, it's, we, we know this, you know, our, our culture has been telling young people to, to go out and get established faster, right? Get, get career success faster. Get financial security faster. Find love and start a family faster. And of course, the best way to get all these things faster is to start sooner. I mean, isn't this the reason that like 90% of people move to Denver? I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure this is behind Denver having like outpaced the national growth average on virtually every statistical measure for like 60 years. This is a real driver here. And yet, how many of us, or how many of us know someone that instead has had to delay a home purchase? Or have a serious housing crisis? You know, despite best efforts, young people are actually getting established later than ever before, even while they're starting it earlier than their parents did. That's a a driver of despair. Of course, our despair isn't just about economics. Despair affects our well-being and our health. Dangerous driving, risky social media use, and drug use have all been tied to perceived levels of individual despair. And despair can even be a killer. The numbers I see from 2005 to 2019, an average of 70,000 Americans died annually from what is known as deaths of despair. So this is alcohol poisoning, drug overdose, suicide. 70,000 people a year. You add that up from 2005 to 2019, that is more deaths that have occurred in all of U.S. history of armed conflict, every war. That's a lot of people. And that's just up through 2019. What happened in 2019? You all are trying to forget. Nobody wants to say it out loud. Don't say it out loud, Jason. I know. And then we had COVID. Then we had COVID. And COVID exponentially increased American levels of despair. But fortunately, that's all over now, right? Wah, wah. I'm going to give you a little test here. I don't want anybody to raise their hands or anything like that. But I happen to have the top three psychological reactions to COVID, according to research here, okay? So you can give yourself a little test. And tell yourself, oh, did I have any of these in 2020, 2021, maybe this year? Number one, maladaptive behaviors like binge eating. It is eerily quiet in here right now. Can I just say that out loud? Number two, emotional distress like anxiety or depression. Number three, defensive responses. I'm not defensive, I don't know what you're talking about. Honestly, I don't know anybody, if I'm being honest, I don't know anybody who didn't have all three of those things during COVID. Seriously, that's despairing. That's real. So this morning, while we're still in a season of hope, I want to take a deep dive into this Christian message of hope. Because the seeds of Christian hope were not sown when Jesus walked out of that tomb. And praise the Lord that he did. But they go back further than that. They go back further than Jesus even walked on the earth. You can trace them all the way back to the book of Genesis to a covenant that God made with a guy named Abraham. And I want us to see that there's three things in this covenant that can give us great hope. First, God initiates the covenant. Second, he defines us by the covenant. And third, he fulfills us in the covenant. And I'm going to submit to you that because of these things, we can live with great hope today. So the first thing here, God initiates the covenant. We're going to look at Genesis 17 verses 1 and 2. It looks like it's already in front of us. Whoever did that, give that guy a Klondike bar. Thank you for those slides. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. What is a covenant? The first rule I learned about preaching is that if it's worth saying, it's worth stealing. And Matt has already given a great definition of preaching, so I'm going to steal it. Great definition of a covenant. I'm literally going to give you what he's already said, okay? He said a covenant is an agreement between two people that makes non-family members family. I think that's a great definition. Here's two great examples. One would be a marriage Another would be an adoption. Great examples of covenant. I'm taking nothing away from that. What I will add to it is that as a, as a guy who happens to both be married and happens to have adopted two kids, the covenant that God is making with Abraham in Genesis 17, it looks a lot more like an adoption than it looks like a wedding. And here's what I mean. When I got wedding, I got wedding wedding once. There's this one time I got wedding. I got married, and at my wedding, my wife and I both stood at the altar, and we said our vows, and I said, I do, and she said, she said I do too, right? It would have been awkward if she hadn't, right? Because if she hadn't said anything, we wouldn't be married. Because that's how weddings work. You both come together, you both make vows, you both make, it's very, very mutual in that sense. Uh, However, when we adopted our our two youngest kids, uh, two separate adoptions, we stood before the judge and the judge said, do you guys want to adopt? Kelly and I, do you want to adopt? We said yes. The judge didn't ask our then three-year-old kids, do you want to be adopted? Now, there was certainly testimony from, you know, outside witnesses that we would, you know, not ruin their lives, which that still remains to be seen. There was certainly, you know, they certainly, we certainly talked to our kids about it before we did it, right? But uh, the bottom line is this, a three-year-old kid who needs a family is not an equal party with the adults that want to adopt. In the same way, God's, in God's covenant, we are decidedly like the young children. We are decidedly the lesser party. We don't really know what's going on. It's just sort of happening to us. And yet God makes his covenant with us anyway. If anyone here has ever tried to make a deal with God, you, you kind of know this from experience right? Anyone ever said something like this, God, if you, if you just give me that spouse, if you just give me that job, if you just give me that kid, if you just give me that house, wh- whatever it is, then, right? Then I'll follow you, then I'll go to church, then I'll, I'll quit my porn use, then I'll become a missionary in Tajikistan or, you know, whatever it is, whatever the deal is, right? What do we make these kinds of deals with God? Normally it's because we see our hope evaporating before us. We really wanted that spouse. We really wanted that house, and we, and we see the hope of it slipping away, and so it's, it's a last-ditch last effort on our part to hold on to that hope. And yet our deals with God, they end up making us more despairing than, than, than less. And that's because it is really, really hard for us to bring God to our bargaining table. We have nothing that God needs. I have nothing to offer. How do you bargain with someone when you have nothing to offer? And yet what we see in Genesis, Abram doesn't barter with God at all. He doesn't bring God to his bargaining table. That's not how it works. In fact, the verb that is used here, uh, that God uses to describe his covenant action, uh, it's it's translated here as, as make, I will make my covenant with you. The root word here actually means to give. God is giving the covenant to Abraham. He's he's doing something gracious. He's he's offering a gift. He's holding it out. Our deal making with God that is literally the opposite of God's covenant making with us. Anyone here ever seen the TV show Let's make a deal? Come on, what were you all doing during COVID? I was watching TV. I don't know about you, but I was watching TV. And if you don't know the show, right, it's there's members in the audience and if you get selected, you come down and you start playing this game to win a prize, you know, and if it's something big, it's, it's a car or something like that, you know, and as you're playing the game, you know that you're going to get interrupted because Wayne Brady is going to stop you and he's going to say, I'll tell you what, if you quit playing right now, I will give you a thousand dollars and you should think about this, because if you keep playing and you don't win, you're going to walk away with nothing. And then contestants have to decide, am I going to take the deal, or am I going to keep playing here and try to win, win the car or, you know, whatever it is. But there is this other game inside of the show, Let's Make a Deal. It's called You've Already Won. Anyone seen this? This an envelope and it has the words, you've already won, written on the envelope, and there's a prize from the show that's tucked inside the envelope, and literally all you have to do is pick the envelope, and you win the prize. That's the whole game, that's how it works. And so often, we think that the game that we're playing with God is let's make a deal. When God says no, the game is you've already won. I already wrote the covenant. I already gave you the terms. I already, it's already done. I already wrote it down, and I've, I've offered it to you. I've given it to you. That's it. All we do is receive it. We are literally not going to find a better deal. Not only does God initiate his covenant with us, he defines us by the covenant that he initiates. We're going to look on here. Genesis 17, verses four and five. God continues with Abraham, and he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Just like adopting parents, they give their child their last name to kind of mark the finality of the adoption. Right? In the same way, God is giving Abram a new name to mark this special covenant moment that he has with him. Let's not forget, guys. Abraham is 99 years old when this is going down. He is not a spring chicken. This is a German psychologist, uh, Eric Erickson. He tells us that older adults go through what he calls the last psychological stage. He calls the stage integrity versus despair. And he says this, it is a retrospective accounting of one's life to date, how much one embraces life as having been well-lived as opposed to regretting missed opportunities. This stage includes acknowledging what individual accomplishments have not gone as hoped. It also includes feeling a sense of contentment and accepting your deficiencies and the deficiencies of others. If elders are unable to achieve this acceptance, they may experience despair. Abraham, of course, didn't have to face COVID for which I'm sure he is eternally grateful. But nonetheless, he had to be facing some level of despair. He's 99 years old, he's probably looking back on his life, processing what he had accomplished and what he had not. He's probably processing his identity. We know he's processing his identity from the context in Genesis. Who am I if I am not to be a father? He probably already had to bury many of his own family members and friends. He was probably lonely. Who's going to bury him after he dies? He doesn't have a son to do it. What do all of his life's accomplishments mean? Everything that he's done and he's built for himself, what does it mean if it's all going to be inherited by somebody else? Everything he's done to establish his family, he's got no one to give it to. I remember, I spent some time with my grandma before she died. And I'll never forget, she looked me straight in the eyes and said, Jason, don't grow old. And I remember my response, I said, well, grandma, it's got to be better than the alternative, dying young. And she literally broke her gaze with me and kind of went like this and said, yes, That's coming too. And I went, okay, Grandma. This is a little bit eerie. If we live as long as my grandma, if we live as long as Abraham, we're going to face the same kind of despair. And then where are we going to look to find hope? Like Abraham... We can look to our covenant identity. We can define ourselves by the covenant that God makes with us. The covenant that God made with Abraham is the same covenant that he makes with us. I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but I want to show you that this is the case by jumping a little bit here. We're going to read a section in Romans chapter 4. So I'm gonna pick up an argument that Paul's in the middle of making here just to make a point that this covenant that God makes with Abraham is the same as the one that he makes with us. So pick up with me with Romans chapter four, verse 16. That's perfect right there. Paul says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, that is all Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. That's a direct quote from Genesis 17, right where we just were. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Only one year off, that's not bad, about 100. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, Sarah's his wife. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I'll tell you, that is what it looks like to have hope in the face of despair. Just as Abraham found hope in his covenant identity, so can we, the children of Abraham, the people of faith, find hope in our covenant identity. The same covenant, that God makes with Abraham, he makes with us. So God, he gives us hope by initiating this covenant with us. He gives us hope by defining us by the very covenant that he initiates. And he will also give us hope by fulfilling us by the same covenant. Flop back once more to Genesis. If you're a flopping, back and forth kind of person, we're going to read Two more verses here in Genesis 17. We're going to read 6 through 8. God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations. And kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. See, in Genesis, God is constantly setting things up to be fruitful. He creates the universe. He creates the world. He creates grass and trees. in the world. He creates a garden in that world. He puts Adam and Eve in that garden. And what does he say to them? Be fruitful. And that lasts for like a solid five seconds. Because immediately they have kids, right? And then Adam and Eve's own kids. One kills the other. Okay, Say, say whatever you will about that. It is decidedly un fruitful. So the story goes on. It's getting worse and worse. And God basically decides he's going to start over. And so uh, he's going to flood the earth. He floods the earth, but he saves Noah. He saves Noah and his family and the animals and the ark. And when it's all over and the floodwaters go away, Noah steps off the ark and God looks at him and he says, be fruitful. Exact same thing. And things kind of tick up a little bit from there. I mean, at least in the sense that Noah's children don't immediately kill each other. But it's still a long way from it being all roses and butterflies. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 17, we see God talking to Abraham, and he says something even stronger. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Bar none, that is the strongest fruit bearing language in the Bible so far. It is so strong that it's kinda hard to translate it. God is saying something like, I will cause you to be exceedingly fruitful. God literally rigs this covenant with Abraham such that Abraham can't not be fruitful. I saw this this magic act on, on uh, YouTube. I think it was a magician's looking for a, an audience member. Does anyone have there have a penny or have a couple of pennies? Some guy digs his hands in his pants. He's got a couple of pennies. He comes up, puts them on the table in front of the magician. The magician kind of wraps them up in these papers, and he looks at the guy and he says, "Okay, well now you got to give it the magic shake." And the guy's like, kind of half-heartedly, you know, reaches over, shakes the papers, whatever. Magician opens up the papers, and his pennies have turned into nickels. And he tells the guy, okay, stick your hand out kind of like this, right? So he puts his hand out. The guy, the magician puts the nickels on the top of his hand, and he puts this little brass cap over the top of the nickels. And then he says, okay, now go ahead and do, do the magic shake. And the guy kind of does this awkward shake because he doesn't want to knock the nickels off his hand, right? And the magician pulls the cap off, and the nickels are turned into dimes. Anyway, the trick keeps progressing, keeps progressing, and finally the guy's got a dollar. And the magician's like, can I have the dollar? He says, yeah, sure. Right? And uh, he's like, well, before you give it to me, you know, I want you to sign it. You've seen this, right? Guy signs the dollar bill, gives it to him, and the magician produces this weird looking device thing. And he kind of lays the dollar bill on the device. And then he, he turns to the guy and he says, okay, now before we do this, you've got to give it the magic shake. And the guy enthusiastically kind of reaches over and you know shakes the little box up. You see the magician roll this kind of thing, kind of a roller over the top of the bill. And as he rolls it over, you see George Washington's face disappear and Ben Franklin's face appears. And he pulls out the bill and he gives it to the guy and he says, is that your bill? and the guy holds it up, it's clearly a $100 bill, and his name is still signed on it. And he says, thanks for participating, he goes back and he takes a seat. Isn't that a cool trick? I would, would, I would show up for that magic show, I'm not gonna lie. Right, the guy shows up with pennies, and he leaves with 100 bucks. This guy keeps participating in the magic act because he learns over time that the magician intends to give him something better and better every time he does the magic shake. And in the same way, God's people keep participating with him in his covenant because he's doing the same thing. He keeps making us fruitful. It's so ironic because left to ourselves, our despair will eat us. It is this ever downward spiral. And yet the covenant where God makes us exceedingly fruitful, our our actions and our fruitfulness is literally spiraling in the other direction. It's spiraling in an out of control fruitful direction that we have no control over and that God chooses to make fruitful for us that we didn't even ask for. See, we we kind of think like this. How many of us roll out of bed on a given morning, and the first thing you think is, "Oh, what day is it?" And you look at, "Ah, crap! It's Sunday. I gotta go to church." Are you all that dishonest, or am I the only one that thinks like that? (laughs) I can't be the only one that thinks like that, right? Like sometimes you're just like, "Oh, you gotta be kidding me! I gotta go sit and listen to this guy." By this guy, we mean me, not Matt. But then you show up anyway, and you end up meeting some people. And over time, you become this person that you could have never been on your own. You become this great version of yourself that you didn't even know was inside. Or how many of us say, gosh, you know, all I do is I show up in the nursery and I wipe butts for an hour. I mean, come on, nothing glorious about that. But you don't realize that what you're doing is you're giving somebody else an opportunity to show up. And somebody else an opportunity to meet other people. Somebody else an opportunity to experience that same kind of transformation. Or how about this? How many of you have ever tried to share Christ with somebody and end up putting on a free comedy show? Anybody ever done that? Anybody in that person? Yeah. Like you, literally, you say all the wrong things. You forget to say all the right things. You tell yourself, don't make it awkward, don't make it awkward, don't make it awkward, and you make it 10 times more awkward because you were trying not to make it awkward. Yeah, anyone got that? Listen, I love telling this story, but I I came to Christ when I was 16 years old. The person that shared Christ with me was a 17-year-old girl. She had serious social and emotional issues that I will not go into. She had no training She had maybe six months of church attending experience. And here's the best part. She did it over the phone. Okay, not FaceTime, not Zoom, over the phone. I have coached a lot of people how to share their faith and you know what I never do? I never say, you know what would work really well is if you picked up the phone and just gave them a call and then just worked it into the conversation on a phone call. Yeah, I, I heard her, and I put my faith in Christ for the first time that way. And I don't, who knows whether I'd be walking with God today if she hadn't shared with me. I got to tell you, God simply causes his people to be fruitful, even in spite of our our half-hearted attempts, our weak faith, our attempts to break the covenant, everything else that we try to do, God still makes us fruitful. And in my experience, there are just few things that are so satisfying as to do something with a broken faith, a weak faith, and see God take it and multiply it and make it exceedingly fruitful. It is deeply fulfilling to see that and it should give us great hope. So I say to you this morning, let the God of the covenant be your hope. Ask yourself, what is that I really hope for? I mean, if you're honest, like what is, it, what is it the thing that you really hope for? Is it, is it a better financial position? Anyone out there hoping for the uh, Jeff Bezos super yacht Heard about this thing? He's having a yacht built for himself that's longer than a football field. It's a yacht so big that it has its own, wait for it, support yacht. (laughs) The support yacht purportedly has a helipad. Is it because it couldn't fit on the football field yacht? I, I don't know. Right? I didn't even know what a yacht was until I learned that there was this thing called a super-yacht, and now I want one. <laughs> is that what our hope is? Is your hope in something else? Is it in sex? Man, I hope that I get the best sex of my life. Man, I hope that I can have sex with all the beautiful people. I hope I have sex with, like, dozens of beautiful people. Before I die, maybe hundreds of beautiful people. Wow, that's what I... You guys are, like, not sure whether to laugh or to throw up right now. <laughs> you to see it on your faces. But my point is this. If we're honest with ourselves, some of the things that we hope for, man, if we said them out loud, they would sound ridiculous. But for some of us, This morning, it's not a shallow and false hope that we're shooting for. That's not our problem. Our problem's not a false hope, it's a real despair. It's a despair so real that hoping in anything feels like a dare. And in a country that's in a crisis of despair, with a slumping economy, with rising COVID cases, with an escalating conflict in Ukraine right now, I gotta level with you. Your chances of coming out of despair on your own are not good. The odds are not in your favor. So I wanna be really clear, okay? If you, if anyone else here thinks that they are struggling with a serious mental health issue, one sermon on hope is not enough to rearrange your mental furniture. It's not going to do it. Come find me afterwards. Come talk to Matt afterwards. Let us refer you to some wonderful professional people who can can help get you healthy, who can give you the gift of healthy ears and healthy grey matter between your ears, help you rearrange that mental furniture so that the next time you hear a message of hope, you're in a healthy position to receive it. We all need hope. It's been said that human being, they can't live five days without water, can't live five minutes without oxygen, but they can't live five seconds without hope. So I hope, I hope that you see the hope that God lays out for us in his covenant. It is an exceeding hope. He initiates it with us without us even asking. He says, this is who you are. He defines us by this. And then he makes us exceedingly fruitful, which turns out to be far more satisfying than you ever thought or ever asked for. That is hope. God's covenant is the only thing that can reverse the cycle of our despair. And so because we have such a covenant, let's live with such a hope. May the God of this covenant, the God who rose from the dead to seal it with us, may he be our hope this Easter season, both now and always. Amen.